You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. All right, so today's message is we live right through God's grace because we've been made right by God's grace. We live right because we've been made right. Um, This morning we're going to do a quick recap of last week's message from Pastor Joe, and then we're going to go through verses 1 and 2 and just see what does it mean to live right. And we're going to have a a particular focus on just civil government. What is civil government? Um, Then we're going to go to verse 3, which will be the bridge to connect living right with living right through grace with being made right by grace. And we're going to be reminded of what Christ, like where did Christ take us from? And then verses 4 through 7 We'll see how have we been made right with God. Would you pray with me real quick? Father God, we, we need you. We need you this morning. We ask for your grace, even while realizing how much grace you give us without us even knowing it. Thank you, God. You are a God of grace. You lavish grace upon us. Help us to see the the truths of your word. Help us to fall in love more and more and deeper with you, God. We ask that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week, Pastor Joe walked us through Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. And and we saw the already but not yet um, reality of redemption, similar to what what Kenny uh, told us in the exhortation. In, In one sense, our salvation is in the past with the decisive work of God's grace because his grace appeared. In another sense, our salvation is progressively happening. So it's happening in the present because the grace of God is working in us and through us so that the way we live testifies to what God has said and what God has done. And all of this is even while we wait for the future appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior which is the final aspect of salvation described as our blessed hope. So this empowering grace in our present aspect of salvation, it it trains us to renounce ungodliness. It trains us to to renounce worldly passions. It trains us to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. This is a grace that enables us to be zealous for good works. And so for this week, we'll see a continuation of how this grace is applied. We see in our passage this morning, chapter 3, verse 1, it starts by saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities to be obedient. And I just want to double-click real quick on on rulers and authorities and and thinking about just what what is this this God-given government. So there are three forms of God-given government. There's the government of the state, what we traditionally think of as the civil government. We see this in Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2. 
There's the government of the family, which we see established in Genesis 2.18, and we see the order of it in Ephesians 5 and 6. Then there's the government of the church, which we see a lot all throughout, but especially 1 Timothy. So those are the three forms of government given to us by God. Another form of government that that sometimes people mention is self-government. Another word to describe that is just self-control. And as Christians, we know that self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, enabling by God's grace to give us self-governance. I want to focus on civil government real quick. Romans 13.1 says that the governing authorities, what we call civil government, is instituted by God. And that there is no authority except from God. We know that God gives authority to people. Jesus told Pilate in John 19 that you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. Daniel 2.21 says that God removes kings and he sets up kings. By God's common grace, there's an ordering to human life. And it's a, a manifestation of who God is. Our human nature is designed to establish social order. And we see this in the ordering of the family and the ordering of the church. Paul in Romans 13 actually calls the governing authorities things like God's servant for your good. He calls them ministers of God. So they're supposed to operate in a way that reflects God on behalf of God, even whether they realize it or not. In that passage and others, you see that God institutes government for the purpose of establishing peace, order, and justice. The civil government and the church possess unique God-given authority with distinct jurisdictions. This is the idea behind uh, the separation of church and state. So the ministry of the word and sacrament, that belongs to the church. The ministry of justice belongs to the state. But here's the thing, the separation of church and state does not mean that we shouldn't use our faith to help guide us and direct us outside of the realm of church or family. One of the assumptions that we have bought in a secular society is that secularism is a religiously neutral thing. As Christians, we've been told that we shouldn't impose our morality, especially legislated or through law. But the thing is, every law imposes a morality. There's no such thing as a law that doesn't impose a morality. And and this is my point. Biblically, everyone has a God. We're worshipers. Society tries to say that we're homo sapiens, thinking man, but truly we are worshiping man. Everyone has a God. Everyone worships something. Everyone has values, passions, and things that we derive our meaning from. A a sense of purpose that gives us guidance, direction, and shapes our decisions and choices. All people have that in one way or another. All people, no matter how irreligious, have principles of ultimate value which, with, with which they decide what is right 
and wrong. Everyone has standards that govern how they view and interpret the world. As one pastor said, none of us steps into the public square leaving our objects of worship behind. And so I say all that just because we need to be mindful. We, we should be engaged as Christians. We engage the world because God first engaged us in all our dealings, no matter what sphere of life we're in. We engage having God as our ultimate authority. Our ultimate allegiance is to God, not to your job, not to your boss, not to your political party, not to your country. Our ultimate allegiance is not in our ethnicity. It is not even in our family. Our ultimate allegiance is to God. We fear God above any person or authority. The, the Proverbs are littered with reminders about fearing God. Here's a few. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it rests satisfied. To be submissive means that Christians should generally have a posture of following the law. As people who know true authority, we recognize how to honor authority. But that doesn't mean just blind obedience without thinking about our responsibility before God and, and especially in our form of citizenship in this country. Genuine Christian devotion to God will sometimes require disobedience to our governing authorities. But it doesn't mean we just resist flippantly just because we don't agree with something or because it interferes with our preferences. Our government is a structure of interlocking authorities with, with different processes all under the Constitution. And so in our current time, well-meaning Christians can and will disagree on what to think of certain about certain policies. There will be well-meaning Christians that disagree on how do we handle these mandates, how do we handle these orders. And so we just need to remind each other that we need to be gracious with one another. We need to listen and reason well. We need to know the law. We need to know our rights. And we need to be careful to not get angry, especially in disagreements, especially with brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to have humility and grace for each other, even when we reach different conclusions. So Christian, no matter what you do in these cities or where you find yourself or what you're called to be in the workplace, no matter what, you are called to be salt and light, living under the authority of God's word by the power of the Holy Spirit, and living for the good of the cities. God told the people of Israel as they were exiles in Babylon in Jeremiah, he said, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile 
and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. That should be our posture as well. Back to Titus, uh, on top of reminding them to be submissive and obedient to rulers and authorities, Paul exhorts Titus to remind them to also be ready for every good work. He says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, and show perfect courtesy toward all people. This is not possible in a God-honoring way outside of God's grace. God's grace enables us to be ready for every good work. Notice that in in chapter 1, Paul characterizes the the false teachers as teaching for shameful gain. And at the end of chapter 1, they were described as denying God by their works and also disobedient and unfit for any good work. And so contrast that with God's people being empowered by grace to be obedient and ready for every good work. Without the Spirit, disobedient, unfit for any good work. By God's grace and his enabling, obedient, ready for every good work. We live right through grace because we've been made right by grace. Paul continues in verse 3 saying, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. We're called to be loving and show perfect courtesy toward all people because that was us. We were them. Paul is appealing to Titus to remind the people of Crete of who they once were and to be reminded of the grace of God in their lives and that God's grace is training them and has trained them to renounce such things. John Calvin commenting on this verse says, nothing is better adapted to subdue our pride and at the same time to moderate our severity than when it is shown that everything we turn against others may fall right back on our own head. Ignorance of our own faults is the only cause that renders us unwilling to bear or even forgive others. When it comes to this description in verse 3. This doesn't mean that before Christ we did all these things to the extreme, but, but this list just it characterizes those who are outside of Christ. It, it characterizes us before Christ. Even if it's in different ways to different degrees, this was us before God's grace. Sin is anything, whether in thoughts, in attitudes, or, or in our actions, that does not reflect the holy character of God as revealed through his law and word. R.C. Sproul once said that our problem with sin is that it is rooted in the core of our being. It, it permeates our hearts. There is no part of us that is left untouched by sin. 
We think that our evil deeds reside at, at the rim or the edge of our character and never penetrate to the core. It is assumed that we are inherently good, but if we lift our gaze to the ultimate standard of goodness, the holy character of God, we realize that what appears to be a basic goodness on an earthly level is actually corrupt to the core. In Romans it says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that, that none is righteous, no one seeks after God, that all have turned aside and have become worthless, not doing good. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, verse 36, it, dec- it describes the person outside of Christ as having the wrath of God remaining on them. Ephesians 2 says we were by nature children of wrath. It it describes as saying that we were dead in our sin. We are not sinners because we sin, but we sin because we are sinners. Back in Titus, it says that we were slaves to various passions and pleasures. And Jesus kind of says something similar. He says that, that, that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And so being a slave to sin is like being stranded in the ocean and yet dying of thirst. You're desiring water so badly and you are so thirsty that you actually start drinking the salty ocean water. But the salt in the water actually dehydrates you even more and it makes you even thirstier and it ends up killing you quicker. Sin is like that. A cycle of self-destruction leading to eternal death. It says we were slaves to pleasure. In our sin, pleasure is distorted. We don't find true joy in it because God is not at the foundation of our pleasure. God created us as, as physical, emotional, spiritual beings to enjoy this world. And so... God wants us to have pleasure, but outside of him, pleasure ends up having us. God wants us to have pleasure, but outside of Jesus Christ, pleasure actually has us. And we end up being enslaved to the pleasures of this world and to the the worldly passions that are out there and in us. We don't get to experience the fullness of the pleasure in God even by just giving thanks to him. Outside of Christ, there is no thankfulness to Christ for pleasures, the pleasures of this world. You can still experience enjoyment and pleasure outside of Christ, but it, it, it's kind of, have you guys ever left a soda like in the car on a summer day? It's, it's pretty nasty, like a warm soda. Like, it, like pleasure outside of Christ is like drinking a warm soda that's flat and being happy that it was sweet. It's, there's a little pleasure, but trust me, in Christ, we find true pleasure. It says we were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others 
and hating one another. Hated by others and hating one another. But what happens? Verse 4. When the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared. It just, just before we even go forward, just look at that contrast. Like, we, we were hated by others. We were hating other people. It, it, we had so much hate. Yeah, it might have been to different degrees and, and, and in different ways. The goodness and the loving kindness of God appears. He saved us. He saved us. And he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, because of his loving kindness, his his. his Mercy. And by that, the the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. God appeared. The grace of God appeared. In John, it describes it as light shining into darkness. The light shines into darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He saved us. His goodness, his loving kindness To the modern American mind, we think that we're entitled to God's love. Like it's just kind of the way it is. Like if you just talk to to the random person on the street, maybe a family member, maybe even yourself, like how we operate, how we think, we, we think we're entitled to God's love. But listen, if you think you're entitled to grace, It's not grace. If you think you're entitled to grace, it's not grace. We don't deserve grace. We've been saved by grace. A pastor was once trying to communicate to his people about how how God saved us, that that they didn't do anything to to be saved as far as that, that, like being made alive from death. And so he he said, tell me what you did to become a child of your parents and I'll tell you what you did to become a child of God. Nothing. Nothing. One person once said, you contributed nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. 
doctrine is, is so important. There's, I'm not, I'm not going to do these verses justice. I'm, I'm not going to do them justice. We're going to be just in eternity figuring this out. But, but all doctrine, all truth, these, these truths that we find in Scripture are supposed to lead us to just worship God, to humble ourselves before our Creator. I want to read a quote from John Stott. Man, it's a little bit long, but man, I think it's powerful. He said, it would be hard to exaggerate the magnitude of the changes that have taken place as a result of the cross. Truly, when Christ died and was raised from death, a new day dawned. A new age began. The blessings of such a great salvation are so richly diverse that they cannot be neatly defined. Several pictures are are needed to portray them. Just as the church of Christ is presented in scripture as his bride and his body, the sheep of God's flock and the branches of his vine, his new humanity, his household or family, the temple of the Holy Spirit and the pillar and buttress of the truth. So the salvation of Christ is illustrated by the vivid imagery of terms like redemption, propitiation, regeneration, justification, sanctification, reconciliation, to name a few. Underlying them all is the truth that God is calling out a people for himself. That God in Christ has borne our sin and died our death to set us free from sin and the power of sin and death. Such images are indispensable aids to human understanding of doctrine. Yet, We must not deduce from this that to have understood these images is to have exhausted the meaning of the doctrine for beyond the images of the atonement lies the mystery of the atonement. The deep wonders of which I guess we shall be exploring throughout eternity. Listen, doctrine is supposed to lead us into further recognition and awe of who God is. Knowing about regeneration, that that God regenerated us. He, He spoke light into the darkness of our hearts. And that sparked in us faith. And we repented of our sins and, and, and put our faith on Christ, trusting him completely. And in that, the Holy Spirit pours out his grace on us to empower, empower us and enable us to live for good works. Good works is, is all throughout this verse 8, devoted to good works. Remind them to be devoted to good works. We don't just get saved and then now we do it in our own strength and, and start doing good works. We are saved two good works, still through Jesus' grace. Still, even in our good works, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I just want to go through the gospel again. 
Jesus was God in human flesh. He was God and man. He was the life who was the light of men. He was sinless and perfect. He fulfilled all righteousness in the law and he took upon himself the dreadful guilt of our sins and carried it. Instead of us carrying it, he carried it on the cross. And on the cross, he took upon himself the wrath of God, satisfying the justice that that all believers from all time deserved. And he purchased our redemption even as he had planned it from eternity past. He obtained our regeneration and justification. He obtained our sanctification so that in the fullness of time, after the cross, throughout history, as we are living our individual lives, God appears. The grace of God appeared in history But then the grace of God appeared in your life. You were walking in darkness and the grace of God appeared. He shined out of the darkness at the beginning of creation and said, let there be light. And that's what he did in our souls and our hearts. And the Father, through Jesus, poured grace upon grace by the Holy Spirit into our lives and shined the light of his grace into our hearts, shining like the sunrise in early morning. In that waterfall of grace by the Holy Spirit, the Father called us. We were birthed as a new creation out of the Spirit spirit blowing where he wills, not by the will of man or of the flesh, but by the will of God. The heart of stone we once had is now a a heart of flesh. We're inclined towards God as a newborn is inclined towards their mother. And in that ever-flowing waterfall of grace that does not stop, it grace was poured on us when we were saved and it does not stop. It's an ever-flowing waterfall of grace landing an ocean on our heads. It keeps being poured out on us. His goodness, his loving kindness, his, his mercy, his, his grace is an endless roaring, roaring river just flowing to us. By the Holy Spirit, it continues. It does not stop. It creates new desires and and loves for us. We are being sanctified by the Spirit. Every day we are being renewed by grace. God's word being illuminated by the Spirit, coming alive to us like a, a, a lion awaking from his sleep. It shines in our heart by the Spirit, transforming us into the image of the Son. It might be little by little in some areas of your life. Sometimes the spirit causes drastic changes in other areas of your life. But no matter where you're at 
even when you're stumbling and crawling towards God by God's grace and his spirit. His grace is still being poured on you. The fact that you can even see the direction you're going to is evidence of God's grace in your life. It doesn't matter how bloody your knees are, how much you're crawling, even those times when we're face down on the ground feeling empty. God's grace is there and it is sufficient. God's grace through his spirit transforms our attitude, our thoughts and our actions and and though our outer self is wasting away our inner self is being renewed day by day every day until we reach that glorious day where the appearing of the sun brings the finality of the hope of eternal life like when we get to see Jesus When we get to see our Jesus, precious, glorious Jesus, the hope of eternal life, one day we will stand before him. We will probably fall on our faces before him. And he will lay his hand on our shoulder and embrace us. This life as a believer is an ocean of God's grace preparing us for eternity that will be an unlimited universe of God's grace. We live right through God's grace because we have been made right by God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we we come before you right now as as children come before their father, as as weak children that that know they need their dad. We, We thank you, Father, that your spirit has regenerated us not by anything that we did, but by your mercy and grace. We thank you that you've justified us. You've justified us in Jesus by grace through faith. We thank you that your spirit empowers us to devote ourselves to good works for your glory. Help us right now if there's anyone who who you haven't turned their heart of stone into a heart of flesh already during this service. I pray that you would do that even right now. I pray that souls even right now that haven't completely put their trust in you would put their trust in you. That souls that haven't seen the beauty of your salvation, the the beauty of who you are, 
that you would give light, that they would see. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. We praise you. We praise you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. At the table is the place that we're reminded that we have been made right by God's grace. We're reminded of the covenant that Jesus gave to us. And, and no matter where you're at, if you're a believer this morning, if you've put your trust in him, if you are trusting in Jesus alone, we renew our covenant right now. And it's through his grace, by his grace. If you would say this morning that you trust Jesus alone for your salvation, we'd invite you to come and partake with us. Jesus ate the bread of despair and death so that we can eat the bread of life. Jesus drank the cup of God's justice so we can drink the cup of God's peace. His body and blood are the true bread and true drink. Let us serve you.